Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and my guest this week is one of my favorite sports writers. If you follow the Toronto Raptors and especially if you follow the Raptors and Raptors related news on Twitter, you've heard the name Alex Wong or Stephen LeBron. It would be near impossible not to. He's been in the New York Times, the New Yorker, the National Post, He's also the co-author of the best-selling book, We the Champs, that recapped the Raptors' title run last year. Alex's story is so fascinating because he wasn't always a writer. He was an accountant first. He wrote a blog when he was supposed to be doing work. His story, to me, represents one of the more exciting parts of journalism, that you can come from outside the establishment and find a place to tell stories. Here's his. Alex, most people, I think it's fair to say, if they're listening to this, they know you for your coverage of basketball in some way. Maybe they've picked up your book about the Raptors and the title run. You know, maybe they have read you in the New York Times, the New Yorker, National Post, GQ, Slam. But I want to, I think I have to ask a question, first of all, uh, true or false, you had a Leafs jersey before you had a Raptors one. (laughs) Yes, my very first... (laughs) jersey that i think i owned was a matt sundin um toronto maple leafs jersey so just as a backstory i mean i grew up in hong kong and i immigrated to toronto um you know with my family my parents my older sister i think in 93 yeah 93 so you know at the time i was like eight nine years old and you know hockey obviously for anyone you know growing up in canada especially toronto um, you know that that's just the biggest sport like like you know just going to school in a, in elementary school like you just become a hockey fan because everyone around you just starts talking about the Leafs right. and I picked up that jersey and I think Sundin was the captain at the time um, there was yeah. a C on the jersey yeah, yeah. and um, you know my I mean I came here I went to ESL like English is a second language like you know English was a very new thing to me sports was a very new thing to me and I had no idea what the C stood for um so i had this jersey i mean i think i begged my parents to like go to like a sports check or something and buy me the jersey because i knew sundin was like the coolest player and all that and um you know i think honestly for like five six years i had no idea what that c was until i finally learned that that's for the captain and you know it confused me so much too when they would have the a's too for the assistant captains right yes and i was like why 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 are certain players why do certain players have an a on them um so anyways yes um that was my first jersey and you know what i don't even I don't even think I owned a Raptors jersey growing up. I had hats and T-shirts and things like that. But jerseys were just expensive. Yes. yes. Um, getting a jersey was like a huge thing. Right. It's an ask to, to find a jersey. It takes money. It takes time and preparation to, to go out and find the right one. Uh, so understandable. I, I want to backtrack just a little bit. You mentioned growing up in Hong Kong and, and coming to Canada around age eight or nine. So how much you how much do you remember about uh, when you were in Hong Kong? Like, do you still have memories for then, or or is that too long ago? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, um, I came here in grade three, so I do have vague memories of you know taking taking the bus to school in Hong Kong, grade one and grade two, and kind of just the uh, curriculum and the school system there. Um, I remember, um, what else do I remember about that? You know, I definitely remember, I think there was some kind of grading system where we had to take a test before the start of each semester. And the class, you know, if there was 25 students, you would get ranked. 
like like there were numbers assigned like if you were the smartest kid in the class i think you would sit closer to the front and you would be like a number one or a number two and things like that so there's like a whole class system for when you were just a kid um i think i was somewhere in the middle um so i do have yeah i do have memories of that you know just the apartment that we lived in in hong kong and you know a lot of family like i still have all my uh, all my immediate like my my immediate family's here but you know i don't have any relatives here so um you know, I've made trips back. Uh, the last trip I went back was like two years ago. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of times I've gone back in the last decades just because someone's passed away, whether mm-hmm. it's my grandfather, my grandmother and things like that. But yeah, you know, I don't have like very specific memories, but I definitely remember things from like growing up and that that place is definitely still home to me. When you were growing up, is it just you and your parents or their siblings around? Uh, what was what's the family like? Yeah, so it was, you know, my mom and my dad and my older sister. My sister's three years older than me. And, you know, we'd hang around a lot um, at my grandparents as well. We were very close to our grandparents. You know, that was a very difficult thing when we were told that we were moving to a new country. Um, you know, I think as a, as a kid, I mean, I was eight or nine at the time. I, I still remember I was playing video games. I mean, I picked my name Alex from, uh, from a game. Uh, I think it was called The Miracle World of Alex Kidd. It's like a Sega um, Sega Genesis game, I believe, or one of the Sega systems. Because I remember playing the video games, and my dad was like, "Yeah, we're moving to Canada. We're going to Toronto in like three months." And he was filling out a form for for the elementary school, and he's like, "Do you want to choose an English name?" And I just chose the name of the character that I was playing huh. um, on my video game. So I remember <laughs> a lot of that. We used to do a lot of karaoke at home, hang out with grandparents, play a lot of video games with my cousins, and things like that. Um, just a lot of family stuff, you know. When I look back, that's the thing that I miss a lot. Um, I think coming here, um, the holidays are always really quiet. Uh, you know, um, our family, we don't really celebrate Christmas like that. Like sometimes we'll get together for dinner and things like that, but you know, we don't have those big family gatherings that we would always have, um, when I was living in Hong Kong. Yeah. What did your folks do? Um, my dad owned a fabric company, kind of a fabric company industry. So, you know, any kind of toy companies or any other companies that were looking for like fabrics for like, you know, stuffed animal toys and things like that, it would be produced at his factory. Uh-huh. So he ran a business and I think there was some, uh, there's some like family lineage there. Like my grandfather ran a similar business and then my dad kind of took an arm of that. Um, my mom uh, worked at my dad's company. Um, so that's what they did. And, and you know, when, when we immigrated here, my dad was still moving back and forth between Hong Kong and Toronto because he was tending to the business. And later on, he sold the business so he could be here uh, full time. Uh huh. So before the move to Canada, you're growing up in class and being graded on your uh, performance and all that. What did you think you were going to be? If you see your dad, you know, uh, working in fabrics and owning a fabrics mm-hmm. company, what did, what did you think uh, your future might look like? You know, what? the very first thing I ever wanted to do and it's funny you asked me this because, I mean, like I'm 35 now and I haven't really thought about this. Um, like the first everything I wanted to do was like something to do with space, um, like maybe be an astronaut, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's like a ridiculous thing to say, but back then, like that, those were the first books that I used to read. Like I was just so fascinated that, you know, we were living on like a planet and like there's this whole universe out there um, like that stuff. Uh, just like I got really into that stuff just as a kid. Um, so I think that was the first thing. And, you know, I think moving along, coming here, you know, going to high school and university and things like that. Um, I wanted to be a teacher as well at one point. Um, you know, I, I did some kind of 
uh, teacher assistant type of stuff in university, teaching mm -hmm. classes, tutorials here and there. And I've always just enjoyed kind of like the one-on-one -on -one mentoring um, or teaching a class, just like passing that stuff on to people. And I felt like I had a good personality and approach to do that. Um, but, you know, I, I did none of that. I ended up going into a, a business program and um, uh, got my accounting degree and got my accounting license to be a, a CPA, Chartered Professional Accountant. Yes, I want to get into that story in just a little bit, but uh, but first about the coming to Canada. So you grow up in Hong Kong, and uh, you're going to move to Toronto. But was it, was it Toronto, or was it was it more like uh, Markham or outer boroughs of Toronto? Yeah, we uh, we lived in Markham to start, and then we moved to um, we moved to Unionville, which is right right by. Markham as well so yeah pretty much that area that's where we uh that's where we grew up what is that like because that's a I mean Hong Kong is dense right very densely mm -hmm, populated mm -hmm. uh high rises to go from there to Unionville uh much smaller place yeah you know um even the houses were different right like um just living in like a standard kind of two garage home um it just felt different and um you know transportation you know i remember the first winter i think that was the biggest adjustment because like we had never seen snow before and the first snowstorm my dad like i mentioned was you know he had traveled back to hong kong for business so it was my mom my sister and i and you know we couldn't get our car out of the garage um you know it was the snow was way too high for us to you know do anything to kind of shovel but we had no food at home and i remember we walked um, which would have been just a two minute drive to the end of the road to where the nearest plaza was. And so, and that walk, like we put on jackets and boots and then that walk took us probably like, I don't know, like 30 minutes. Uh -huh. Um, and like we got there and everything was closed. <laughs> that was like, <laughs> I remember that was one of the more like, you know, maybe like early, like just sad moments. Like, oh man, like we just did this. I mean, I'm running, you know, I'm not saying that we we're struggling or anything, but it was just more like, oh man, like this is just a new world that we were in. Um, the funny thing about like Markham and Unionville too. And, you know, maybe some people know, but like Markham has like, I think the fourth highest like Asian population in North America Okay. in, in, in terms of cities. So like going to school, um, you know, a lot of us, a lot of us, um, there was a lot of families like me and a lot of kids like me in my class. Um, the immigration movement happened kind of in the 90s because of um, the Hong Kong, there was a British handover. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they were handing over Hong Kong back to China, uh, which I guess is pretty relevant to like current news, you know, the way we've seen things happen in Hong Kong with the protests and, and all of that stuff. Yeah. There was a lot of uncertainty about what was going to happen. And that's why a lot of parents, like my own parents, um, decided, you know, they didn't want to deal with that uncertainty and wanted to bring us here, um, you know, better education system. I mean, I guess that's, you know, debatable, mm -hmm. um, but um, all of that stuff. And, um, you know, so going to school, you know, my, my, the point I was trying to make is that going to school, um, we weren't, I wasn't a minority. Yeah. You know, I wasn't a minority in school. If anything, like half the class, more than half the class was, was Chinese. Um, and so that was a, that was a strange thing too, because I mean, obviously I knew I was an outsider and, you know, I knew I was in a foreign country, but I never really had to deal with feeling like an outsider like that until like later on in my life. Hmm. When did your sports fandom develop? Mm, very early. You know, the Blue Jays were actually like the first team that I watched when I got here because baseball was such a big thing because they had one in 92 and 93. Yes, yeah. Um, and I, I always used to get mad. I still probably am a little bit too that like I came right after they won like the two World Series. 
And then I had to like, I became a fan and I watched him for like 20 plus years <laughs> and I didn't make the playoffs. Um, but like, yeah, I learned baseball really early. Um, and again, um, just little things, man. Like, you know, just the box score in baseball. I had no idea what was going on um, when they were like assigning positions. Like, you know, like, um, like when they were calling like six, four, three double plays, I'm like, what's going on? Like what's six, four, three, uh, or like what's runs, hits and errors. Like I had to learn all of that stuff. Um, I would read, I think I would just read a lot of books. I would watch a lot of games. I was obsessed with like, uh, like watching TSN, um, and all of that stuff. And, you know, basketball, to be honest, it was like baseball first and then hockey, um, and then basketball. Um, I think the Raptors came in, in 1995. So like two years after I moved here and that's when it became maybe a bigger deal for me. Although I did know about basketball, I knew about like Michael Jordan and all that stuff, even in Hong Kong, just because he was such a big deal. Some names transcend borders and, and oceans, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you end up getting your first basketball jersey, if you had the least one first? Um, I, my first basketball jersey was a Shaq, um, Shaq Orlando Magic jersey. I think we had moved to a new house in Unionville in when i was like in seventh grade maybe sixth seventh grade wherever it was like that was the first time my dad put up a hoop in our driveway and you know i remember you know the the magic were my first favorite team uh was Shaq and penny and it's funny like um i used to always emulate dennis scott um just because you know he, he was like a three-point shooter and i was always like shoot from the corner of the driveways and things like that and um yeah Shaq was the first jersey that i got i still have a photo of it somewhere of me posing on the driveway because that was my um that was my favorite team was that hoop on the driveway was that a regulation height or like what was the kind of configuration (laughs) of it it was regulation height but i definitely lowered it Um, okay (laughs) like there's times when i lowered it so low so i could dunk yes yeah um and there's other times you raise it a little bit just to shoot um but yeah it was a I'm sure it came regulation height, but I definitely didn't play regulation height. Yeah, yeah. So this is one of the ones you can adjust the height up and down. It's got sort of the handle on the back with the, you can toggle it from, you know, anywhere from six feet up to 10. Yeah, and some of my favorite memories, um, not not particularly on that driveway, but some of my favorite memories growing up was playing basketball for school teams. I remember making the grade eight team and then in high school, um, I was the co-captain of our basketball team in like grade nine and 10. And then that was it for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Let's spend a moment here. Uh, Unionville Wolves. What can you tell me about the Wolves? Oh yeah. Unionville Wolves. Um, yeah. So we played in division two because like our team, I don't, we weren't a basketball school. First of all, it was an art school. Um, a lot of people went for like drama, music and yes. things like that. That's what the school is known for. And uh, the volleyball team was really good. I think there were years when the volleyball team would just go undefeated. Uh, basketball team, we played in Division Two, uh, but we had a really good team. And, you know, um, I remember, I think in grade nine, yeah, that was the team. Uh, we went to, I think, the quarterfinals. Um, we had to play. I still remember playing in this small gym, this away game in Richmond Hill. It was like the most fun game that I've ever played. And um, we lost in overtime. I remember going to tournaments in King City. Um, another small town here yes. in Toronto. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, I remember there was like a semi-formal. It's like a school dance um, on a Friday night. And like half the team uh, went to that. And, you know, I skipped it because I knew that meant I was going to play the whole game. Um, and I think I scored like, I think I scored like 28 points because I like, I just took all the shots. Like I just ran point and all of that stuff. So, you know, I, 
like that year playing with that team, uh, that was one of my favorite memories growing up for sure. You mentioned the arts history of Unionville High School. I know a, a lot of famous alums come from there. Hayden Christensen being one of them. Were you there at, at the same time as him? Did you overlap at all? Man, this is good research. Um, so Hayden Christensen's sister, older sister, I believe, was in the same grade as me. And okay. we had a lot of classes together. And I specifically remember how annoyed she was because when Star Wars came out and Hayden became a huge name, um, you know, everybody wanted to be friends with her. <laughs> um, and she was so particularly annoyed by this. I remember many instances where people in class would try to talk to her and she would just like not want to have another conversation about her brother. Yeah. Um, and um, I'm trying to think, man, there's other celebrities that went to my school. There's a lot of figure skaters that went to my school. Yeah. Um, I, I figure skated actually um, for, for two years. Really? Um, what, what, yeah, what time yeah. period was this? Oh man, this is right when I got there. So like 94, 95, okay. I guess it was like Elvis Stoichel era. Yeah. Um, like um, my, my theory, I've actually never asked my dad about this. I mean, uh, my parents obviously wanted to sign me up for extracurricular stuff. Um, I think my dad just made the wrong turn at the rink. I think he was trying to sign me up for the hockey team. Um, like the hockey team goes to the left, the figure skaters <laughs> go to the right. I mean, I, there's nothing wrong with figure skating. I enjoy it a lot. Yeah. And like in the later years, like in high school, like even when I had never, like never figure skated anymore, when you go on school trips and you go figure skating, like people would be astounded because yeah. I was like an expert skater. Like I'd be skating backwards and everything. Um, so um, yeah, figure skater for two years. Um, I forgot what was the original question. Oh yeah, yeah, the celebrities. Yeah, that was the only one that I that I really remember was uh, was Hayden Christensen's sister. Okay, yeah. While we're talking about you know school memories, one of the things I'm interested in is, is who people learn from. I, I think at least partially because I was raised by teachers, um, but in everyone's life, I think you know there are if you're lucky, people who spark something in you, whether that's a teacher or some other mentor figure. One name I want to bring up for you and hear about is Miss Klein. If you could tell me about yeah. her. Yeah. So um, she was my grade eight um, homeschool teacher. And um, to be honest, it's been so long. I don't remember how the system worked, but like she taught me English. Um, she taught other classes, but English is the one that I remember. And, um, you know, just for context, I mean, I, I met up with her um, for the first time. I mean, since I left that elementary school, Central Park. I met up with her uh, uh, about a month ago and we got back together and, you know, she remembered me and, you know, I, I, we had, we grabbed lunch and I told her, you know, like you, you just had such an influence on me and, you know, uh, she doesn't remember these specifics, but I ran her through it. You know, there was, um, there was one semester, like I was, I was like a, like straight A, like top of the class type student back then. And there was one semester where like, you know, I just, everything just like fell apart. Like I was doing terrible. I was handing in assignments like half complete, just like I wasn't myself. And, you know, I think it was probably because I was like, you know, whether it was whether I was finally starting becoming like socially kind of popular or something where I got distracted or maybe there was some stuff, you know, at home that was distracting me. Just a combination of things. My schoolwork had slipped up. And, you know, she had pulled me aside and, you know, she 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 gave me I still remember the specific place like in the school, like in the corner, right next to our homeschool room where she like, we had a conversation about this. And she just told me that like, you know, you have um, so much talent, you know, in terms of, you know, just your writing and things like that. And you're so passionate um, about the things that you do. 
that you, you know, you, you can be better than this um, if you can focus on it. And, you know, I, I really, you know, she doesn't know this, but like for me, like that conversation was something that I really held on to for, you know, uh, up until now. But like for the rest of my, you know, in high school and university, everything that I did, like even when I work or when I write now, like I still remember that conversation in the back of my head that it always reminds me that like, hey, you know, you got to have a specific level of focus. And, you know, if you if you want to do something like you have to kind of focus um, and just do it right. Um, I know those are very basic things, but I feel like I learned that from from that conversation with her and just from in general, just the guidance um, that she gave me when I was uh, just a kid in grade eight, you know, things that I probably didn't realize at the time because you just don't realize those things. But I probably realized later on. Did you have much uh, of a sense of, you know, uh, enjoying writing at, at that time or, or confidence in your ability to write or when did that come? Mm. Not really, I would say, you know, I think I enjoyed when we had writing assignments and things like that. But, you know, like I mentioned, like to me, um, English was just such a new thing to me. And, you know, even now when I write and, and things like that, you know, I, you know, English is still a second language to me. So, um, I mean, I'm sure we can get into this later, but it's just that's why for a lot of my writing, I think, you know, if I were to analyze it, um, I do a lot of I'm not very good with like personal writing. I think I'm better as like a reporter interviewing other people, telling other people's stories because I feel like other people's words um, are stronger than my own in a way. Mm, mm. So, you know, I think growing up though, um, you know, I always like writing just like whether it was, you know, just, just blogs. I remember starting blogs like on every single platform, yeah. um, like, like WordPress, you know, when Friendster was around before Facebook, I used to have a blog. Um, you used to just like, like writing. And, um, you know, just writing and sports, just two things that I really liked. But, you know, back then, I, it was never a thought that, you know, I was going to, you know, write about sports or anything like that for, for a career. Well, yeah, you were not a writer first, not professionally anyway. Uh, <laughs> if you could tell me about uh, the, the career path you took and, uh, and how Sears played a part. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, um, yeah, so I went to school for, for accounting and then when I graduated, you know, I had already gotten like an internship or a co-op job at, at Ernst & Young while I was at the University of Toronto. And, you know, they had offered me a full-time position and, you know, I started there and I worked there for, I think, like six or seven years. And then um, from there, you know, we just did like audits, like auditing, like that was the department that I was in. And, you know, there's just something I didn't enjoy. Like I made a lot of friends there, I think, but um, there was just no fulfillment for me. I think, um, you know, financially, as some somebody graduating out of university, that's probably one of the best jobs you can have. So, you know, financially, I was very stable. You know, my parents were obviously happy with that. Right. And um, but for me personally, it just didn't work. And, you know, I bounced around different jobs. You know, I worked at Sears for a little bit um, in their like internal audit department. And I hated that. You know, they were their corporate office had like no windows. Um, so like every day we were just in there and I just felt like really trapped. Um, it was like a metaphor within a metaphor. And then, um, I moved around, I moved around, I did like contracting jobs and I ended up at, um, at an entertainment company, um, where I worked directly with the, uh, COO there as a senior financial analyst. And that was my last job in the industry. And I remember, I think this is like in 2012 or 2013, you know, I still remember, you know, there's. There was already an inkling, like, you know, I had been on Twitter a little bit, 
Um, again, I had this blog on Tumblr that some people checked out and thought it was cool. Like I do like small posts, fun stuff, just kind of pull up like niche, like sports stories from like the past that people didn't know about. And I would write about it. Um, so, you know, I, I wanted to get into writing, you know, I didn't think it was something that maybe I could do full time. And then one day I showed up to work and, you know, they, they told me that because their company was merging with another company that they were eliminating my role and they were going to, uh, I was basically laid off. So uh-huh. I was called into the, I was called into the HR, HR's office. And I still remember the guy giving me the whole spiel. Um, you know, here's your severance package, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I, I looked at him, I told him, I'm like, yo, I was like, I was like in a pretty good mood when he told me that, uh, you know, I told him like, Hey, like, I think this is good for me. Like, um, I think this is going to be the, the, the thing that makes me, um, kind of go do something else. And I told him like, yo, I'm, I'm, I'm going to become a writer. And, uh, I still remember him giving me like, a. I mean, this is not funny, but like, I remember it. Like, I remember him giving me this, um, pamphlet. Uh, basically it's kind of like a, like a suicide hotline type of thing. Cause you never know like what these types of things, when yeah. people are laid off from their jobs, how it might affect people emotionally. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think me telling him that I wanted to write, you know, as, as someone who was like in a financial analyst position just seemed so out of nowhere for him that he was worried. He was worried like about my mind state. Um, and I still remember that. So, um, that was, that was the last job. That was the last job that I did. And then, um, yeah, from there, I just decided to pursue uh, full time uh, as a writer and see if, if if it would work out. And I had no idea if it would. Tell me about the first byline you had. Like, how does how do you get from that moment of being laid off and and then ending up with your name attached to some piece of writing somewhere? Yeah, so I think at the time I had already started kind of just, you know, one of the one of the early websites that I would attribute my career too is the the classical and you know at the time uh, working with someone like david roth who's one of the writers that i respect a lot you know he gave me a space um, to be able to tell stories and just write and work with me to improve my writing um and the other part of my story too is so after i got laid off from my job um, i got married i think about maybe four to six months after that and um, i'm divorced now but my ex-wife um, got a job. She was also in accounting. She got a job in New York. Um, so we actually moved to New York and I lived there for about three years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I moved there, you know, um, obviously, you know, she had a job. So and I had some money saved up. It was one of those things where I told myself, All right, I'm gonna give myself like six months. Right. Um, like, w- like with her support, you know, like she was she was very supportive. She knew I wasn't happy. She's like, yeah, you should go for it. And, you know, I was going to give myself six months, see if it was going to work out. And I think in my third day when I got there, you know, one of the buddies that I knew who used to live in New York um, said that, hey, uh, Complex is looking to start this new uh, basketball vertical called the Triangle Offense. And, you know, he passed along my contact to Complex. So I think within my first week of arriving in New York, I went to their offices and um yeah you know it was just a it was just a very standard kind of like blogging position they said are you going to be available during the day to do this and um yeah it just started there and and from there um i worked with dime magazine and then an editor at gq reached out and i started pitching more stories um sports on earth which is a website that does no longer exists um brought me on as an nba writer and that's the first time i got credentialed to you know, report 
at games. And New York is a great place because they have two teams, the Nets and the Knicks. Yeah. So there are a lot of opportunities in terms of practices, games, and teams coming through to do that. So, um, you know, honestly, it's a combination of just, I think, kind of hustling, persistence. Um, you know, I don't want to discredit myself on that front, but also mm-hmm. just a lot of luck. Just a lot of luck, man. Like, like I always tell people, like being in this industry, especially me, I've worked mostly as a freelancer. Um, you know, your 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 paychecks and the money that's coming in and the writing opportunities depends on like a handful of editors that you know. Um, you know, if you're writing for like four or five places, you know, mm-hmm. if those five people move on, or you know, if they they no longer work in the industry, then what are you gonna do? So it's been a lot of just moving around, but very early on, honestly, it was a lot of people helping me out. And, you know, just getting opportunities and just taking advantage of them. Uh, moving to New York City and becoming a writer sounds like possibly the most cliche thing I've, I've, <laughs> I could hear. Uh, did you have uh, your like your regular writing haunts that you would go or were you working out of an office then? What was kind of the, the gig? Yeah, honestly, I mean, um, there wasn't really specific places. I mean, I, New York is just such a such a big place in terms of just there's places everywhere so i would just kind of drop by different coffee shops you know there was never really one that i would repeatedly go back to um i'm one of those people that honestly i i like working at home um i find you know i I definitely get distracted at home let's be clear but um like i work very late too like i'm i like i I work at night um i feel like my, my routine is very much i spend the day um, you know, whether it was emailing editors or, or setting up interviews, doing interviews, but, but the, the, the main work that gets done, the writing and all that stuff usually comes like after midnight and things like that. Um, so for me, it was just a lot of working from home because a lot of times I would just work kind of at night and during the day, especially early on there in New York, um, I would just be at my laptop at home. Um, because I had to, I was the guy who was blogging, you know, whenever like, and any NBA news broke, like that was the thing that I was doing. You mentioned already the importance of relationships with editors, especially as a freelancer. You know, journalism can often be an insular world. You know, it's it's a handful of editors that uh, you might have contact with uh, that are either going to give you you know stories or or they're going to pass on your pitches. And uh, and the the journalism industry more broadly can be a very closed door one. You see the, the same columnists bounce back and forth between newspapers. Uh, and there's also a sort of this pay to play element where often you end up having to work for free in order to get in the door somewhere. You know, you have to do internships or, or long periods of, of being willing to write for, for free. Um, you came from outside of all that world. You know, you weren't, you weren't, uh, the one who went to journalism school with so-and-so who's now an editor somewhere to have that kind of relationship already. What was it like finding a foothold? Yeah. Um, you know, you know, now that I've been in the industry, I think five, six years and having having the time to really reflect and having the, the opportunity that I'm really grateful for to talk to younger writers who reach out to me uh, with these similar questions and advice. Um, you know, the one thing I always tell them and the thing I look back now on is like, you got to check your ego at the door. And, and, and what, what I mean by that is that, you know, when you network and like you talked about, like the journalism industry and probably any industry is that, you know, a lot of times the doors are closed and a lot of times it's about who you know. And when you don't know anybody at the start, it can feel very lonely. It can feel like you have no idea what's what's going on and how things work. You know, what I did was, you know, I would reach out to, to just every single publication and every single editor 
that, you know, at those publications that I wanted to write for. And very early on, I didn't have a lot of clips. I didn't have a lot on my resume that I could send them. But, you know, I would pitch them stories um, and I would reach out and ask them, you know, like, you know, if, if, if there's anything that they were looking for on a freelance basis. And, you know, a lot of times I wouldn't hear back. And sometimes I would have to follow up, um, you know, every week, every two weeks. And maybe by my fifth email, I would um, hear from someone. And I honestly feel like a lot of people don't do that these days, especially younger writers. Um, if they don't have the connections, they get very discouraged very quickly. And I get that. And I get that. Um, this industry um, can be very discouraging. And, and even though, you know, certain people, I feel like um, maybe see me as someone, you know, with all the, you know, bylines and, you know, have done really well in this industry. Like this industry is still really discouraging to me uh, as well. And I think it's important to let people know that, too. When I talk to younger writers, I tell them, like, you see the end results of, you know, the work that I publish and things like that. And I get it gives me um, a, a kind of certain, like, reputation or however people want to look at me. But I, I try to tell them, too, like, there's still a lot of stuff that's hard um, when you are an outsider um, and things like that. But, you know, that's the thing. That's the thing that I would say um, w when looking back and when I tell young writers, too, is that there's just a level of persistence to this. And um, the persistence, whether it pays off or not, at the end of the day, you know, I don't think this industry or any industry is a meritocracy where, you know, just because if you are the best writer in the world, you're going to get all the opportunities. You do have to know people and you have to be in the right place at the right time. But you also have to put yourself in in a position to be in those right place at the yeah, right time. Yeah, you yeah. have to make yourself visible and available. And the best thing I tell people, and this is a really scary thing every time I say it, because like. I always tell people, you can find anyone on the, on the internet. You can track down anyone on the internet if you want to talk to them, which is, you know, probably not a great thing. Um, but like, <laughs> if, if there is someone that you really want to reach out to at a place that you want to write for, you, you're going to be able to find that person. Mm -hmm. Like, you just will. You just will. And um, that's what I tell people is that you just, I just put myself out there a lot, man. Like, that, like, that's what I did. And I think the other thing, too, like, once you start getting the chance now, you get your foot in the door and work you have to be like an accountable person. Um, like like the quality of the work, okay, that's up to the editor to judge, that's up to people who read your work to judge, but half the battle is just, you know, meeting deadlines and being accountable. You know, I've had editors at, at, at major publications tell me, like, you do not understand like how many times, um, you know, writers will just like disappear off the map or tell you they'll file a story here and then they don't hear from them like a week past the deadline. And all of those things were really new to me. And maybe the only thing that I really brought from my experience from being in business and being in accounting, where those deadlines, uh, you know, is, is like do or die and that's your job, mm. is that I brought that with me to this industry. Um, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm very organized. And, you know, I think, you know, when I say it's a deadline, obviously sometimes maybe things come up and you can't make it, but I communicate. Communicating and meeting those deadlines is half the battle. That's why editors will trust you and come back and assign you work again. Um, sometimes it's not just the quality of the work, right? So maybe somebody else is a better writer than me and delivers higher quality work, but because they know that they can trust me uh, with a time-sensitive deadline and things like that, editors will choose me over them. I want to bring it back to the moment that you're leaving the accounting world and getting into writing, uh, to, to bring it back to the, the reaction on, uh, on your colleague's face uh, when you tell him you're going to get into writing. You know, it's, that could be, I think, a scary thing to leave the sure thing of an industry like accounting or, or any other industry. I mean, there's, there are many more stable jobs than being a, a freelancer and, and being a journalist. 
you know, you see, I see it from, from people all the time. Uh, I'm doing my master's in writing right now. And, uh, and to see reactions from people about that word writer is, is something. How did you get through the uncertainty of leaving the quote unquote sure thing? Yeah. You know, I think for me, it was just more, I had reached a point where I just needed to do it. Um, and, you know, I think I come from a privileged position in that, you know, obviously, um, I was married at the time and it was a dual income situation. So even moving somewhere else, um, wasn't as scary of a prospect as it might be for other people who, who are doing it alone. And, um, you know, I think less so the fear, it was just more knowing that, Hey, I'm going to give this a try. And if this doesn't work, I will just have to sadly come back to, um, the accounting world. Right. And, to me, I reconciled it, you know, like it's not the end of the world. Right. Like, like if the saddest thing for me um, is to go back to a job that will pay me very lucratively <laughs> to, to, to go to work uh, five days a week, I, I think I think I would have been able to reconcile that. Right. So in the back of my mind, it was always that backup plan. But, you know, the more as I got into writing and as it seemed like like this was a thing that I can actually do. That's what pushed me. That's what drove me. And I think that still drives me today is that I never want to go back to that. Like, I just never want to go back to that. Um, but, you know, I think things have changed for me. You know, I'm 35. You know, when I went through all this, whatever you want to call it, like just a struggle with 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 the career that I was in that I wasn't satisfied with. I was like in my 20s, like mid 20s. And, mm -hmm. and like, um, like all people in their 20s, you know, I was very fake deep. And, you know, I think I just put a lot of of onus on you know what work uh represents for me mm. you know like 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 um you know having this job and knowing the fact that i'm not you know the, the most the most disappointing thing for me when i was working in that industry aside from the fact that i was miserable is that i knew i wasn't trying my best mm. like i was happy to i was happy to get by i was happy to go into those performance reviews and get a three out of five and you know just get my standard raise like I wasn't putting myself out there and, you know, maybe it goes back to kind of like what I told you about my conversation with my grade eight homeschool teacher, Ms. Klein, telling me stuff about how, you know, you, if you want to do something, you got you to put your full foot forward and things like that. I just wanted something that I, I, I really cared about. I just wanted something that I would have no uh, qualms about diving straight into and putting kind of my whole life aside for. And, you know, I found that when when i when i moved to writing and and you know aside from like the bylines or, or any of that stuff that is the satisfaction that i get from you know having made this career switch mm. what was that first validator for you whether it was a byline or story that felt like oh, okay i'm here uh, i belong in this space you know <sighs> I don't really have a, a specific answer for that, but I think over time, as I was getting um, assigned more stories that were uh, feature-based, and I felt like I had started to gain the trust of my editors, or when writers that I respected uh, would share my work, or if you know I, I, I bumped into them at an NBA arena or in person, and they would give me positive feedback, you know that really meant a lot to me, and. Um, you know, I, I would say those, I would say those are the things, uh, I don't think there was really, uh, one moment where, I, where I felt validated. And to be honest, I feel like, um, maybe this is just all, all writers. Like, I feel like we're constantly trying to, trying to find that validation. Hmm. 
I find it to be a fleeting process where, you know, you get the validation of a byline <laughs> and then the next one, you know, maybe it takes a while before the next one comes <laughs> or that, the that, that buzz wears off from the, from the one it's a peaks and, uh, peaks and valleys kind of thing. Yeah, most certainly, man. And I think, um, it's funny, like, you know, when a story gets published, like as, as a writer, you're already done with it. Right. Right. Um, like, you know, there's already other stories that you're in the middle of working on, or there's new pitches that you're working on. So like, as people are sharing your work and hopefully enjoying it, um, you know, me personally, like I've already moved on. Right. Um, so it's kind of always, it's always just like a next thing. Like, okay, this story has come out, people have enjoyed it. Um, and I think my approach is always just like to not be, I guess, not be comfortable in a way. Um, like I'm not going to lie, like, like, you know, after having done, you know, so much stuff, like kind of in this industry, you know, if I, if I were to sit down and reflect, I, I probably am, you know, more comfortable now, um, than say three or four years ago. Um, but you know, I still don't want to lose that drive. Mm. I'm interested in how you have found your voice as a writer. It's, you mentioned earlier, you know, writing in English, not being your first language. Like how, how has that been for you to find, uh, a level of comfort and confidence in, you know, this is my style and this is who I am when I write. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I try to write in a way that's me, um, that, that that's my voice. You know, I, I like to think that if, you know, friends that know me and people that read my work, um, when they read my work, you know, they'll know that, hey, that's Alex. You know, that's like the Alex that I know. Um, so it's not like a different person trying to be something, uh, be trying to be someone else. Um, you know, th I think that took time. Um, that took time. I think reading, you know, I read a lot growing up. Um, you know, I probably should read more now. You know, I'm one of those people that's probably too addicted to their phones. But, um, you know, I think reading helps too, man. Like, I think just, you know, just consuming other people's writing, um, you know, it, it eventually translates into your own work. But, you know, when I first got in, like you mentioned, like most people know me from my basketball writing. You know, that, that was a struggle for me. I felt like for the, maybe the first year or something like that, when I was a, when I was reporting and writing NBA stories, I felt like I was just trying to like emulate other people. Right. Mm. Like I was just trying to like write like the basketball writing that I have read. Um, and you know, one of the things that one of the moments that really crystallized like me, uh, becoming, uh, or finding the writing style that I have, um, you know, I won't, I won't snitch on this writer or get him in trouble, but you know, this is a, uh, another writer, you know, he was based in New York at the time covering the NBA for a major publication. And I remember we were standing in the locker room and I think this was, I can't remember the exact team. It was probably like the thunder with like Duran and Westbrook. And he pointed to, um, he pointed to like Westbrook or KD, whoever, let's just assume it's like a prominent player. Yeah. He pointed to him and he was like, who is that? And I was like, how can you be <laughs> writing for this place? Um, you know, one of the places that I, I, I wanted to write at, um, as their like lead NBA writer <laughs> and you don't have a single idea who like one of the maybe top five, 10 players, most recognizable players is, and you know, the thing that he told me was, you know, my thing, he was never a huge basketball fan, this writer. And, you know, he told me that, Hey, like my goal is to tell and write fun, interesting NBA stories without ever having to watch a single second of the game. Mm. Um, and you know, that stuff. You know, that stuck with me because, um, you know, I think I took that from that conversation was that, you know, I'm not 
I'm not interested in writing like the X's and O's stories. Like, first of all, there are people that do it better than me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if, if that is something that I just try to emulate, I'm just always going to finish second at best. So, you know, from there, I started saying, hey, let me think about like, how can I write these stories and report on these stories and tell stories and just take advantage of this access that I have and give people a glimpse um, into the lives of these people or what they think about certain off off the court things or write trend stories and things like that. Um, so that really that from that that point on, I think that was a couple of years into me writing. Um, I really started leaning into that. And I feel like from then on, people that read me come to expect a certain type of story. And um, editors seem to know that, you know, if I pitch them a story, or if they assign me a story, that it's going to take a particular tone. And it's going to take a particular kind of vibe. What has been, uh, we're talking about locker room for a moment, what's been your most mortifying, uh, hopefully in a funny way, locker room experience with an interview, or if not in a locker room, then then in any of the interviews you've done? You know, I, I think in my own experience, it's times like when you uh, you think you're doing an interview and then you realize you're not recording uh, and you might be halfway through or done an interview and then you look back or the battery's dead. Um, but what, what would it be for you? Um trying to think you know for me actually you know locker room interactions have been fine i mean i'm pretty sure i've had like once or twice where you know i forgot to press my recorder but 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 never for like any of the huge interviews that i've done or the important ones that i've had to do uh for me it was actually getting my you know one of my very first one-on-one assignments with an nba player was at uh new york fashion week when gq had asked me to spend time with Chandler Parsons, who at the time was with the Dallas Mavericks. Yeah. And I just remember that being a whole thing. Like, I remember he was staying at a hotel in Soho, and his publicist had told me to show up at one in the afternoon, and we were going to go like shoe shopping with him, just like a scene thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I take the subway into the city, and like 15 minutes before I get an email from a publicist saying, oh, let's just reschedule. He's doing something else. Let's just reschedule to like 6 30. Yeah. So I like went to like the IFC and like watched a movie. I might have watched two movies actually, just like kill time. And then I showed up um, finally at his hotel. He told me to just come up, and he like opened the door and he was like just in his underwear. <laughs> and he's like, "I'm just getting changed. Um, like you know, we'll be ready in a sec." Um, and then um, his girlfriend at the time was there too, who I eventually looked up and realized that she had just dated Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh-huh. So this was just like a whole starstruck thing for me. And this was very early on for me yeah. where I, I still hadn't lost, um, you know, they, these were still like stars and like yeah. athletes for me. Like, you know, uh, I've lost that since um, they're just people to me now. But um, at the time I was just like, wow, this is like crazy. And then we like, you know, we got drinks downstairs. We did our interview. He like did a red carpet thing. And the whole thing was just very overwhelming for me. And, you know, um, and, you know, that's that. Yeah, that's that's the one. That's the one. If you ask me that question, that's the one that I remember. And I think it was a good like learning lesson for me. What did you learn from that? You know, I, I think it's just the thing that I'm still learning to whenever you get time with athletes, it's just getting the most out of them. You know, like it's not like athletes oftentimes have their own agendas. They're very media trained. And, you know, if you're meeting with them for an interview, it's uh, probably because they're promoting something or there's something that they want to talk about. So to be able to draw things out of people, um, I think, especially in different environments, is something that I'm very um, 
aware of now and something that I feel like I've gotten better at. But I feel like it's another one of those things like the validation that I mentioned that you're always tweaking and chasing and trying to get better at. I'm conscious of time here. I don't want to take too much more of it, but I would be remiss if I don't ask you at least a little bit about the Raptors. You've covered the team during really the best seasons ever to cover the Raptors. You know, the most prolific part of the franchise history you've been there to witness. What was that first Raptors moment that flashed through your head when they finally won the title this past year? Oh, man. Um, I don't know, man. I think there's just too many because I, I think, you know, the, the main thing was just knowing that, like, all the heartbreak that they had gone through, even when they were a good team, you know, all the years going up against LeBron and all the disappointments in the playoffs and the Raptors just being kind of the butt of everyone's jokes, you know, whenever the playoffs came around. It was just this vicious cycle of, you know, the Raptors are getting no attention when they're really successful during the regular season. And then when they do get all the attention, you know, they get swept. And, um, you know, especially as like a number one seed. Uh, but even looking back to, I mean, just just thinking through all the years, like it's the Raptors, man. Like, mm -hmm. like, like they, their logo is a, their logo is a dinosaur. Like this team really is like at the top uh, of the NBA mountain. Like that was just that was just remarkable. Who's been the person in your career that you've been most excited to interview that that probably wouldn't like other people wouldn't necessarily care about, but you have like a outsized um, enthusiasm for them? Ah, oh, man, this one's tough. You should have prepared me for this one. Um, you know, I did this New Yorker profile of uh, Bob Rosen, who uh, worked at Elias, um, uh, the Stats Bureau for many decades. And, you know, I don't know if this answers your question, but that, you know, I'm sure like not like nobody has heard of him probably listening to this, but it's just um, I found him or like I sat next to him at a uh, Knicks game on Media Row. He was there and I saw him like tracking stats on this sheet and I just started talking to him and I was like, I got to write a story about you. And, you know, we went out for uh, lunch, I think twice. And he sat down and told me just, you know, how much of a sports fan he was growing up. And he had been around for so long that he remembered watching the Brooklyn Dodgers. And he told me so many great stories. And, you know, that was my that that remains one of my favorite interviews and one of my favorite friendships that I had. And it was very unfortunate, you know, after the story came out, um, he was thrilled with it. Um, you know, he would email me telling me, you know, how his friends got a kick out of reading a story about him in the New Yorker and, you know, he told me, um, and then we, we went for lunch, um, I think twice more after the story came out and, you know, he would just keep telling me uh, about the article. Like he was just so happy about it. And then I think I found out a year after, and this was, I think towards the end of my, uh, me being in New York or I had moved back to Toronto that, you know, he had passed away. Mm. And, um, you know, I think about that a lot. Um, just being able to tell someone's story, right um and being able to tell the story while he was alive and that it's it's there you know for for his friends and for his family for his relatives um i guess all of that is just to say like that's the type of writing and that's the type of story that you know not necessarily i think you know maybe a lot of people care about or a lot of people would read but that's what i get you know that's that's the satisfaction that i get you know to know that i, I was able to tell the story of his life 
And, you know, I've certainly had a chance to, to interview much um, higher profile people. Right. Right. Um, you could you could name long lists of NBA players. I mean, celebrities, too. You know, GQ has given me a lot of opportunities. Like I recently interviewed Kirsten Dunks a few months ago that I was very excited about. But um, it's those things like an interview with Bob. Um, those are the stories that honestly, like I get the most joy out of. Mm. You've uh, you've co-authored a best-selling book. Was that in the expectations? Did you think you would write a book someday? <laughs> you know, it's funny because, like, um, you know, people always say, you know, listen, I think it's great. You know, Sean Willie and I, we wrote um, this commemorative championship book. But, you know, the backstory on that is, so uh, Triumph Books, which is the publisher, um, they publish basically a commemorative book for the championship team every year. And they had actually reached out to me in, I believe, 2016. Whichever year it was that the Raptors made the conference finals and mm. played Cleveland, they reached out to me when the when the Raptors won game three and four and tied it at two. Because mm-hmm. as a publisher, they have to get ready, right? Right. Like two teams, whoever makes the finals, they're going to have two separate kind of people working on a book and only one of them is going to publish. Right. They reached out to me in 2016. They were like, hey, would you be interested in this if the Raptors made the finals? And like, no disrespect to the Raptors. I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do it without giving it a second thought because I knew they weren't going to win. Right. right. <laughs> like, I was, I, was like, this, I was like, this is not happening. I think I literally took a Greyhound to Cleveland the next day for game five and they like lost by 40. Um, so they reached back out to me. Uh, and, and this all came together over like two and a half weeks. Um, um, they reached out to me, I think, three or four days before the NBA finals. Um, I believe they were working with the Toronto star maybe to publish the book, but something had fell through and, you know, they had contacted me previously. So they asked me if I wanted to do this. Um, but you know, the, the scope of it, you know, we had to pull a lot of, a lot of this from uh, writing that we already had in terms of profile pieces of key players, coaches, general managers. And then we had to go back and write recaps uh, uh, of the playoffs of each game and we had to write recaps as the NBA finals was happening all without knowing whether this was going to publish or not. Right. 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 So, um, and we had to get the forward from Jack Armstrong. So when they hit me with that three days before the finals, like I was working for Yahoo sports and I obviously was covering the finals for them. And there was just a lot that was going on. And this just felt very overwhelming. I probably could have pulled like four all nighters to make this happen, but you know, I wanted, I wanted the quality to be good too. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so, you know, I reached out to Sean, and I knew that Sean um, had actually applied for a finals credential, but, you know, he didn't get it approved, unfortunately. And, you know, I thought he would be I've always enjoyed his Raptors work. And I, th- I thought he would be the perfect person to work with me on this. And I also kind of just felt like, you know, he had been a long he had, he, he had been covering the Raptors for a bit and not being able to, to be there for the finals. I wanted to give him something to be excited about, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the two of us worked together on this and it published um, and, um, you know, for me, I kind of refer to it like, as like a coffee table book. I think it's cool. It's like a commemorative thing. Where, you know, when everyone in Toronto was snatching up every single kind of championship merch, it was cool to see people pick this one up. Right. Um, you know, for me, one of my personal goals, I would still love to break into, um, you know, the book publishing industry for good um, in terms of writing my own kind of maybe like whatever long form story it might be. Uh, a reported book that I can spend, you know, a year, two years on. And, you know, I've had book proposals, I've discussed ideas, you know, things have fallen through and things like that. So um, that's definitely something that I still, you know, that's a goal of mine, something that I want to push through and hopefully do. Just one final question. If you think about 
your path from you know being a kid to to being an accountant and working a job you didn't like and bouncing around to now you know covering the NBA finals covering a NBA champion Toronto Raptors and uh, and all of the bylines you've got what's been the best most unexpected thing to come out of this to come out of all of this um you know oh man that's a tough one too, man. You should have sent me this one too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, unexpected. Um, honestly, it's just finding out like how much I can do. Um, I think, you know, when I came in, I had just had no expectation of, you know, how any of this stuff was going to work. And, you know, you know, just even showing up to an NBA arena, like um, it's daunting the first time that you're there. You don't know when locker rooms open. Um, you don't know when you approach players. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of rules to this stuff, and you don't know how any of this works. And, you know, just building rapport with editors and, and pitching stories. Um, I think, you know, recently for me, um, the unexpected thing, or, or maybe the thing that I get a lot of satisfaction for, and I think I've referenced this a lot in my interviews, is just talking to young writers. And, you know, I don't know if I'm being unfair um, with my approach, but I tend to speak more and, and encourage more uh, people of color and, you know, minorities mm -hmm. and, and Asian writers. You know, I tend to want to mentor them more because I feel like my experiences, good or bad in, in the industry, are things that they will also deal with when they're in, in the industry. So for me now, it's, it's, it's a little bit of just giving back um, and realizing that, you know, I've learned so much, I feel like, in the five, six years that I've been in, in this industry that sometimes you have to stop and realize that a lot of people don't know these things, just basics. You know, so many young writers don't realize, like, how you even put together a pitch um, um, to editors. So um, for me, you know, I think maybe the unexpected thing is just, you know, I, how much joy I've gotten just interacting with people that I don't know. And maybe there's a lot of these people who I talk to via email and things who I'll never meet. And, you know, hopefully if I'm able to help them a little bit, you know, I, I would, it would mean a lot to me. Hmm. Alex, thank you for taking the time. It's been fun. No, thank you. I appreciate it. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening. And I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor and hit subscribe, rate, review. Most of all, tell someone else about it. If you really love the show, if you want to support in some way, you can head to the shop section on the Story Untold website. You'll find a whole bunch of merch there. That's storyuntold.blueberry.com. If you want to get in touch a few ways you can, you can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. Mm -hmm.